Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Well, hello. I have a question for you. Go on. Which I think will appeal to you. Yes. Do you know the phrase, feed a cold, starve a fever? Yes. I think it might be correct, at least as far as the cold part is concerned. Do you find that you eat more when you have a cold? I definitely find I have a bigger appetite when I have a cold. But that's not what that phrase means, is it? It's a cautionary saying. Are you sure it's not a medical advice no, that you no. should eat a lot when you have a cold and you should eat little when you have a fever? No, I think it's, well, it, it's definitely you should eat a lot when you have a cold, because then if you do, you will starve the fever. Oh, I see. Feed a cold, starve. <laughs> yes. You're going to get a fever. Oh, I see. So it's not two separate injunctions. No, it's an instruction. So if you want to starve a fever, if you want to stop a fever from even developing... I mean, I'm wrong on so many levels about this, aren't I? Yeah. Why? You've got a cold and you've been eating eating ravenously. I've had a cold and I find just I eat more when I have a cold. So what, what have you uh, what you been eating? What does Ed Miliband letting himself go look like? Uh, two muesli bars. <laughs> <laughs> That's just... I'm just saying that. The saying has been traced to a 1574 dictionary by John Withals, which noted that fasting is a great remedy for fever. The belief is that eating food may help the body generate warmth during a cold, and that avoiding food may help it cool down when overheated. But recent medical science says the old sore is wrong. So I think you were half wrong and I was half wrong. It is two separate injunctions. The, the remedy of a fever is to fast, and the remedy of a cold is to eat a lot. Does that make sense? Is this a cry for help? Have you got a cold? Are you okay? I, now I'm over it. Are you sure? This is not nice, though, is it? It really wipes you out. Oh, I see. This dates back to last week when you think I showed insufficient sympathy. <laughs> I wasn't looking for sympathy. I was just looking for medical advice. Just, but tr- quite just why trying I to model, model behaviour. It's been around for centuries, this. How do you think it got passed down through the ages? I don't know. Well, how does anything get passed down? If it's catchy enough, if it's true enough, if it sounds true enough, it gets passed on. Well, anyway, I just find I eat more during having a cold. Maybe I don't know whether the listeners agree, but... Mm. Have you ever thought about doing one of those competitive eating contests? No. I feel we're straying dangerously close to my bars. Uh, <laughs> now, you know what it is this on. week? The days are getting longer. And it's the most romantic day of the year, Valentine's Day. Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. 
I can see a look of panic on your face. Is this because you are the Shadow Secretary of State for Climate Change and Net Zero? You have a lot on your plate and you haven't given Valentine's Day much thought yet? No, obviously I've been gearing up for it all year. Because I've got a little something to help you out if that was the case. Okay, I need to know what it is before I accept the offer. I have asked our old friend or our new friend, ChatGPT, to write you a lovely poem for Valentine's Day. A, a poem from you to me? No, I've told you before, I like you, but only as a friend. I'm not attracted to you. This is a working relationship. We've got to have boundaries. I mean, maybe if the podcast ever came to an end, I'd be willing to explore what underlying feelings there may or may not be with you. But but no, this this is a poem from you to your wife, Justine. Oh, I don't think I want to hear this. Why don't you read it, see how it is? Because it doesn't sound right coming from me. This is what ChatGPT came up with for you. So I'm, I'm holding the flashcards up. Justine, my love, judge so fair. She dispenses justice with such care. Is that it? I don't know, it's a strong opening. We met at a party where I spoke of all things Keynesian. She was bored. I'm surprised I didn't know her friend Adrian. <laughs> How's ChatGPT doing so far? <laughs> Quite well. But love, it was fate, when by a Doberman when she was bitten. I was there with a bandage and once she was smitten. I don't remember the Doberman. I mean, it sounds unlikely because it sounds far more likely that you would be bitten by a dog and not her. Mm, maybe I've sort of selectively you know, screened it out. Mm. I don't know. She once was an actor in a show called Dramarama. If I was Barack, she'd be my Michelle Obama. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Although she fails to close the food waste bin properly, I like to woo her with a Hugh Fernley Whittingstall recipe. This is terrible. <laughs> we watch TV but never agree on which show to watch, but that's okay with me for Justine, my love, makes my life complete forever by my side. She'll make life so sweet. Oh, my God. You're impressed with what AI can do for uh, the busy man on Valentine's Day. I think you just wrote all that. I didn't. I just tweaked it here and there. It was mostly chat GPT. How much did you write? Um, I made Keynesian rhyme with Adrian. The Doberman. No, no, the Doberman was chat GPT. Well, I think if you were to recite that and get your violin out of the loft, that would be a lovely Valentine's treat for her. I think she'd think I've taken leave of my senses, actually, <laughs> personally. <laughs> right, should we talk about what we're talking about this week? So this week, we're talking about who makes it to the top of society and why that matters. Before Christmas, there was an article that came out uh, from New York Magazine talking all about Nepo babies. And that was their term for actors who were given a leg up into that industry because of their parents. And it's quite a Gen Z way of uh, naming something that has existed for years. And it's, it's basically the idea that meritocracy is a little bit of a myth for, for all these reasons and nepotism really just being part of that. It's, it's the way that background can advantage you. And today we're talking about that and how you would go about solving it because it's a difficult one. And, and thankfully, we have found some people who are doing loads of great work to tackle the issue. We're talking to Alan Milburn, Joe Seddon, who's founder of a social enterprise called Zero Gravity, which is really impressive. And comedian Josie Long, who, uh, alongside being uh, one of our finest comedians, co-founded a charity called Arts Emergency, which helps young people who aren't from privileged backgrounds get into the arts. So I think it's it's going to be a good conversation. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is my lasagna. You sent me a photograph of this and we talked at length about it last week. 
You didn't make any rude comments about the photo. It's because I was waiting to talk about the lasagna on the podcast. Because last week you were really struggling to alight on the the right recipe. Well, I went for some combination of a recipe I found on the internet, but combined with some expert help from Janet, party member in my constituency, and I rang Janet, got expert advice. It's in Janet's head, so I had to sort of extract it from Janet's head. I was going to bring some to you, and uh, my wife said, no, I want that for lunch. That speaks very well of the lasagna, because after me, she she is your second harshest critic. It's the ultimate test, isn't it? Because to be honest, people can say nice things at the time, but the proof of the pudding is in the lunch, really. Mm. Had you you run out of all other food? Was it an old Mother Hubbard situation? (laughs) (laughs) What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, I got the cushions for our sofa reupholstered. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. How how common is it in your house for things like the sofa or bed sheets to develop massive holes in them? Not that common. Because I, I only ask this because I, I lived 38 years of my life without really ever getting a hole in a bed sheet or an item of furniture. And since I met Sarah, the amount of holes, and I don't know if she has like talons or she's a werewolf or something, but it's, it's very strange to me. That's quite a serious allegation. Yeah, it is. I find the blame game, it's a humble opinion, but I find the blame game doesn't really work in, your, <laughs> in one's spousal relationships. I think you might be right. I say that rather gently. But, you know. I, I think you might be right, yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Blaming my spouse for that really made things better, said nobody ever. <laughs> no, no, and also said nobody ever. What I did was went round canvassing opinion and found enough people to agree with me that this is strange that holes keep appearing. Then reported yes, it back to my yeah, spouse yeah, to say, yeah. Ed really agrees. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah you, you make a good point. Anyway, I found a nice local business owner called Manuela. She was very patient with me. She sent me loads of swatches. I inundated her with photographs of these things on our sofa. Yesterday I went over there i met beth who made them and she said she listens to the podcast so that was very good for my self-esteem that's great at least she's not the dry cleaners that you were boy ended up boycotting oh i don't boycott them it's just sarah that boycotts them well i know but what if they listen to the podcast well they'll know that i'm on their side and she's the problem isn't the sort of water lapping quite close to the doorstep <laughs> here reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd Now, to start the conversation, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by Alan Milburn, who is chair of the Social Mobility Foundation. Uh, He was also previously chair of a government commission on social mobility. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. It's lovely to see you, Ed. Now, a place I want to start is you left Parliament and pretty soon after took up this issue of social mobility through a government commission, and now you have your own social mobility foundation that you chair. What sort of motivated you to do this? I guess background, like all of us, you know. I came from a very working-class background. I grew up on a council estate. I was raised by a single mum. I didn't know my dad. So although, as a kid, you had no sense of living in poverty, I mean, I guess we were pretty poor, and... I got lucky breaks in my life, you know. I started out in a council estate and I ended up in the cabinet. You know, I thank my lucky stars for all the people who helped me along the way. But life really shouldn't have to rely on luck, should it? And I felt very strongly that Britain in many ways was going backwards rather than forwards on this issue of social mobility and greater equality. And something had to be done about it. And that was a job not just for government, but it's a broader job for civil society. 
Let me ask you a basic question, which a lot of our listeners might sort of think we take for granted, but but maybe we, we shouldn't, is what do we mean when we talk about social mobility? What we mean is really, it's about the correlation between the income and class of your parents and the eventual income and class that you achieve yourself as their child. And essentially, when social mobility is high, that correlation is low. So in other words, social mobility is really all about trying to break the link between where you start and where you end up. And there was a time in Britain where, and look, I was born in 1958, so I'm 65. You're a very young-looking 65, let me say. You should be in politics. You're so charming. <laughs> you know, the academics say that 58 was the peak year of social mobility, okay, for a whole variety of reasons. You know, social mobility was full swing, post-World War, the economy was moving from a blue-collar to a white-collar economy. The role of women in society was profoundly changing for the better, thank God. There was a feeling for a long time when it was almost taken as read that the next generation would do better than the last one. And unfortunately, that today is a promise that's been broken and young people are very much on the fault line. And it's bad news for the social cohesion of our country. You're suggesting that the peak of social mobility was like the cohort you were born into. I'm sure there's a lot of critique you and I would make of the current government, but clearly your analysis is that it stretches further back than that. Why? Lots of things have an influence, don't they, on life chances. You know, your parents, your, your schooling, the community that you grew up in. But essentially, I think there are two big reasons. The first is a profound change in the labour market. I remember as a kid, look, I went to a pretty crappy school in, in secondary school in Newcastle. I was one of the brighter kids. Most of my mates, for their careers guidance, because in those days there was actually careers guidance, they got taken either to Swan Hunter shipyards or Vickers Armstrongs, which built tanks on the Scotswood Road. I got taken, because well, I was one of the brighter ones, apparently, I got taken Department of Health and Social Security and the Northern Rock Building Society. That was a close shave, wasn't it? White-collar employment was becoming possible. And I guess what's happened over the course, really, of the last three decades or so, the nature of the labour market has changed, and there's a much higher premium now on skills. If you get skills, you get the opportunity to advance. The problem is we're pretty good at skilling at the top end, we've got fantastic universities, for example, but there's a huge tale of underachievement. And if people don't get skills and they don't get qualification, they're literally left behind in the labour market. And that's one of the principal reasons why social mobility is slowed down. And the other, I would argue, is that the education system has just singularly failed to deal with this big educational attainment gap between better-off kids and less well-off kids. One data point, if you're a kid from a low-income background, you're over 20 times more likely to go to an inadequate school than if you're from a better-off background. To what extent do you, as somebody who has really thought about this a lot over the last decade and more, to what extent was the rise in overall inequality in the 1980s, did that then feed through into the lack of social mobility? In other words, is it, you know, is it the case that these, sometimes people posit these things as somehow separate, you know, are you for social mobility or are you for more equality? To what, these things are quite connected, aren't they? If you think about it, if the runs of the ladder in society are further apart, it's much harder for people to be able to climb the ladder. And so there's an absolute correlation between rising inequalities, you say, 
in the 80s and what has happened to social mobility, which is at best stalled and at worst is falling. So these two things, people often say, well, you know, isn't inequality and mobility, aren't they opposites? Actually, they're two sides of the same coin. Talk to us a little bit about the, the barriers that are maybe invisible if you're from a working class background. Well, connections are one thing, aren't they? And you see it, I mean, there's this debate at the moment, isn't there, about so-called Nepo babies and it's one of these new phrases that come along every week. There's a sort of hidden network thing. You can see it in all walks of life. I mean, you see it in particular when it comes to things like internships. And the question is, who gets those opportunities? And by and large, they tend to be friends of family because there's an informal labour market, which only some people get access to. And that really isn't fair and it isn't right and it doesn't really work for employers either because then you're selecting from a small pool rather than a large one. Every internship should be openly advertised and it should be fairly paid and if employers aren't prepared to do do that then governments should legislate to make it happen because otherwise it's denial of talent and potential and importantly it stymies Britain's economic growth and our productivity. So, so these things are, are real, these networks are lack of them, but they do have profound economic and social implications. Has that got any better over time? Because this is just anecdotal, but I feel like when I started working in the media, the person on work experience was invariably the chief executive's friend's niece. And as HR departments gained more power and became more prevalent for better or for worse, one, one definite positive seemed to be that wasn't happening as much anymore. I think you're right. I think it has. And again, this is a reason to be cheerful. Um, it, it, has got, it has got better. Um, definitely over time. I think it's now more shameful for employers to behave in that way. But there are certain industries where those work experience and internship opportunities are still dealt with informally rather than formally. So if you think about fashion, design, media, arts, those type of industries, it is often who you know and not what you know that gets you access. And so that really isn't good enough. And again, this is about not doing special favours. It's just ensuring that everybody has an equal chance. Is there sometimes like an Eliza Doolittle element to this as well? In that if you're from a working class background, there's lots of uh, well-meaning middle class people who want to give you the leg up, but only if you learn how to talk the talk and walk the walk and, and, and fit in. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, I mean, you know, and I experience it myself, you know, I'm a, I'm a Geordie, but my friends in Geordie land say that I'm the poshest Geordie that they know. We all do that, don't we? We adjust to our circumstances. But the problem that you've got, Jeff, which is a real thing, and you, lo- and you look at this through the lens of employment, for example, you know, every employer is always too tempted to recruit people who are in their own image. And so then what you get is the replication of exactly the same people. We did an interesting piece of work when I was chairing the Social Mobility Commission um, a few years ago, looking at what professional recruiters were looking for in new recruits coming into professional employment, into financial services or, or, or jobs like that. And they were amazingly forthcoming. You know, they, they would say things like, well, honestly, if somebody turned up with the wrong accent, you sort of wondered whether they'd fit in. Or, 
you'd never employ somebody who came to an interview wearing a blue suit and <gasps> shoes, brown shoes. Why? Because they didn't know how to dress. I'm actually wearing brown shoes as testimony to that. <laughs> in town? You're wearing brown shoes in town, Alan. What a terrible uh, faux pas. So these are, look, they're small, but they're significant things. You know, some of the barriers that particularly kids from working class backgrounds face when they're trying to get into the so-called top professions. And the top professions have got to be aware of that and they've got to do something about it. Now, the good news is that many of them are. Somebody said to me a while ago, um, social mobility only works if middle class parents are happy with the thought of their kids being brickies. Is, is there any truth to that? Well, I think if social mobility is really going to work, it's got to be a two-way street and not a one-way street. In other words, that you know, people who might think that they have an entitlement for their children to succeed in the future may well find that their children are not succeeding as well because others are. So, But, but the point is really, in my view at least, creating a level playing field of opportunity. I know not everyone can be a doctor or a lawyer or a politician for that matter, and not everyone will want to be. But the point is, surely everybody should have a fair chance if that is what their aspirations are. And I guess my point is, at the moment, Britain doesn't feel like a fair chance society. You know, chances are handed out according to luck, and in some cases, according, of course, to ability. But surely what we should be rewarding isn't background or birth. It should be aptitude and ability. I don't know if this was the same for you, but the sense of possibility I had growing up, the, the sense of what would just seem like an attainable job or career to a middle class person felt inconceivable. Whereas, you know, if, if your parents, friends do certain types of jobs, if you're lucky enough to have parents with the time or the background to take you to museums or think a certain way about education or, or books or something, that, that gives you an advantage. I think that's okay in and of itself, that people want the best for the kids and expose them to stuff. But how do you go about that equality of opportunity for kids who, who don't have that? You're absolutely right. There's the so-called soft skills that you learn, which are about your awareness, your communication skills, your confidence levels, how resilient you are. And we often think that those things are just innate. In some senses, they are, but they can also be taught. Okay, we know that these things can be taught. The work that we do in the Social Mobility Foundation is we identify low-income kids from disadvantaged backgrounds, but with high potential, and then we try and support them over a period of seven or eight years, you know, through mentors, summer schools, we help them with their CVs, we try to get them internship opportunities, access to decent universities, giving them what you know, we as middle-class parents would naturally gift to our children. And honestly, the results, Jeff, are just amazing. The outcomes for these kids are phenomenal. They're an amazing cohort. I'm always totally humbled when I'm in their presence. You know, they come from the most difficult backgrounds and are incredible. And it just goes to show, if you give these kids a break and you give them an opportunity, they fly. That's what we should be doing as a society, right? Well, thanks so much for coming on and setting out this issue of social mobility so clearly for us. Alan Milvin, thank you so much for talking to us. Pleasure. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. With us now is Joe Seddon, who is founder and CEO of Zero Gravity, which is a social enterprise that connects the UK's most talented students with mentors, universities and employers. Hello, Joe. Hey, Jeff, how are you doing? Yeah, doing well. Thanks for um, taking the time to talk to us. And I wondered if you could start by just just telling us about what it was that led you to set up Zero Gravity. So I originally grew up in a small town in West Yorkshire called Morley. It's between Leeds and Wakefield, a red wall town or a town that's been in post-industrial decline. But to me, it was it was home. And I grew up in a single parent background. My mum worked as a speech therapist in the NHS. And I made the kind of traditional academic socially mobile journey through state schools to Oxford University. And I saw firsthand on that journey just how big the barriers were for students like me to break into elite institutions. In 1926, only 9% of students admitted to Oxford from, from state schools. Whilst when I graduated in uh, 2018, around 68% were from state schools. So things clearly have changed, but there's still a lot of uh, room for improvement. And when I graduated from university, I wanted to go out there and do something about it. And Joe, can I ask you, how old are you? I'm 25. And how normal was it when you were at school to go on to university? Because I'd say when when I was uh, 16, not many people stayed on into sixth form and then higher education. Had, had that changed by your day? So by the time that I went to school, you know, going to university had become more than norm, even for students like me in West Yorkshire. 57.5% of young people now go to university. But the thing that hasn't changed is access to those highly selective universities and the elite institutions like Oxbridge, Imperial, UCL, the Russell Group universities. Although things have changed, there's still pockets of exclusivity uh, that haven't been disrupted. And what did that feel like to you going to Oxford? What did you come to realise about your path versus uh, the path of other students from more privileged backgrounds? So I felt a lot of the sort of imposter syndrome that a lot of people talk about nowadays and moving to a completely alien environment like Oxford, where I was sort of surrounded by the advantage and affluence was was really difficult and I had to adapt. But I think the thing that people don't talk about as much is also the social mobility guilt that you accrue from kind of leaving where you're from. I was sort of very conscious that as I was assimilating to my new environment, that I was also being detached from my identity where I grew up. And that was that was really tough for me because you know, I didn't want to lose the kind of values and beliefs that got me there in the first place. So I think being socially mobile is really difficult because you almost get stuck in the middle of uh, social mobility guilt on the one side and then imposter syndrome on the other. So do you think there's a sense in which people oversimplify this idea of social 
mobility, with, with the idea of just creating a meritocracy, creating surface level opportunity? I think social mobility is so tricky because all of the kind of root causes of it are so interlinked. I think researchers often like to break down the factors that you know, create a socially uh, structured society into you know, financial factors, network factors, educational factors. But all of these things are inextricably linked. And if you've got no money, it's really difficult to get access to you know, good schooling, private tutors. But the kind of kernel of positivity in that is if you can break the cycle then actually things can change far quicker than you imagine. You can turn that vicious cycle of social immobility into a virtuous circle. So I think there is cause for optimism there. I think often the best way to break the cycle is to focus on the talent of individuals. I think people have historically seen social mobility as a charitable issue or a philanthropic issue. You know, if we live in a society where we're not best utilising the talent from all four corners of the UK, that's really bad for everyone, if the UK could just increase social mobility to the Western European average, we could add 39 billion onto GDP. So that the gains are there for everyone, not just students from low income uh, backgrounds. But I think people need to start taking this issue seriously as an issue of sort of talent and productivity, not just one of charity and philanthropy. There was something interesting there you said about the European average. So can you tell us what is specific? to the UK. Of course, the class system is very entrenched here. How does this issue specifically play out differently in other European countries? In terms of how you sort of measure how well a country is doing, economists have come up with a slightly nerdy concept, which is called the intergenerational elasticity of income. And what that essentially means is that to what degree can you predict how much someone will earn from how much their parents earned when they are growing up. And if you look at how the UK does on this, the UK scores 45%, which essentially means that in the UK, 45% of the amount of income you make on average is driven by your parents' financial success. So Germany scores around 30%. Now, Australia scores 25%, Canada 20%. And if you look at the Scandinavian and Nordic countries, they do really well on these metrics, scoring around 15%. Too often I want to look at those Nordic countries as, as a template. So just set, setting the Nordic ones aside, when you look at, say, a Germany or an Australia or a, or a Canada, what are the underlying factors that mean they're, they're doing better on this? Well, I think there's two things that really drive social mobility, and those two things are education and work experience. So education is key because if you can create an education system where the opportunity is more fairly distributed, now there's not these huge gaps that occur between you know, private schools and state schools, rich and poor, then you're going to get better social mobility outcomes. And when you look at these countries like you know, Germany and Canada, you know, they tend to have you no know, better state education systems, you no know, access to things like private tutoring is more equal. And, and that's where the UK does, does really badly. And then the other thing is access to work experience. The UK has a very structured system around access to the workplace. To get a top graduate job, Nowadays, you often need to have done an internship and even before then to probably have done some informal work experience. If you have that rich uncle who can get you that work experience when you're 17, that can set you up. Whilst if you don't have parents who've been in professional jobs, you, you almost you can't get on that first step on the ladder. Either you try and find ways to stop affluent people building powerful networks or you bring networks to low income people. Talk to us a little bit about what zero gravity 
does to try and break these these networks or these advantage of privilege? So I experienced firsthand all of these problems. I wanted to build a business that went out and solved these problems for younger me. And I reflected on my childhood and I'd seen technology disrupt so many other sectors, whether it was Facebook becoming the predominant social platform or no Deliveroo changing the way that food is delivered or Uber changing how you get around towns and cities. And it always surprised me that no one had really leveraged technology to change the way we identify and incubate talent. So I went out there and built a tech business that essentially focused on identifying talented students from low-income backgrounds whilst they were still at school, and then bringing them the resources on a digital platform to help them break into top universities and careers. At the beginning, it was very much a bedroom startup. I got going with a final uh, 200 quid on my student loan, but since then, we've uh, scaled up quite dramatically, and we've helped over 8,000 low-income students into top universities. And, And that is great, not just in terms of those students themselves, Know, becoming success stories and being able to live you know, a better life. But it also is fantastic in terms of changing the culture and the system. Though we've put so many students now into universities like Oxbridge that the demographics of those universities have completely changed. And that has led to a massive change in the culture and that's opened the doors up for future generations. So I don't think social mobility is an intractable problem because if you really focus on unlocking the talent that's already out there, the things can change much quicker in these institutions than you'd ever imagined. How does zero gravity match the, the talent with the workplace or the university? I'll sort of give you the standard sort of user journey of a, of a student on our platform. So you might be a 16-year-old uh, kid you know, living in Sunderland in the UK, and you're on the bus on the way back from school, and you're on TikTok, and you see um, somebody talking about zero gravity. And that first prompts your kind of interest and intrigue. You know, maybe I could be somebody who goes to a top university or maybe I could be somebody who works you know, as a lawyer or in a, in a professional services organization. And that young person then signs up to our app. It takes around two minutes, but we've got an algorithm in the background that looks a lot of data about their background, what they've achieved at school and what their performance looks like in context. And we use that to really pinpoint the top talent. You know, people in the bottom 40% of uh, disadvantage, but the top 15% of performance when you look at it in context. And then in terms of what that young person gets, they get access to an app where pretty much anytime, anywhere, they can tap into opportunity, whether that's connecting with a mentor who can coach them over video calls about how to break into a university, or it's access to masterclasses, you know, experts talking about you know, their view of what's going on in a particular domain. I mean, also being part of a membership community as well, as I spoke about, there's a huge amount of imposter syndrome and social mobility guilt out there. And if we can really bring socially mobile students together, I think that's a way to create a new sort of culture of belonging where highly ambitious people who might feel slightly out of place uh, where they're growing up have a place that they can call home. And I think that membership is so powerful because it allows young people to leverage the power of networks and the kind of tailwind that gives you over time, I think shouldn't be underestimated. And that's one thing that private schools and elite universities do really well. They're fantastic at creating these alumni networks and communities. And are you optimistic about the direction in which things are heading? I think we've lived through 30 years of social mobility stagnation and especially COVID has made things so 
difficult now in terms of the amount of educational disruption. Ultimately, I'm an optimist because if people really think deeply about how to leverage these technologies as a force for good, then I believe we can overcome the social mobility problem. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Um, if people want to find out more about Zero Gravity, they can do so online. Yes, it's at zerogravity.co.uk. It takes two minutes to sign up. Um, and we'd really love to, uh, to help you if you're an ambitious student from a low-income background. Joe Seddon, thanks very much. Thank you. Well, to round off the conversation, we are joined by Josie Long. Hello, Josie. Hello. Very nice to be here. It's, it's great to finally have you on the podcast. And people will know Josie as a comedian, but you're not here with a comedy hat on today. You're not here with a jester's hat on today, are you? <laughs> no, in fact, I refuse to be anything other than deadly serious. <laughs> So Josie's here to talk about arts emergency, which is a, a fantastic thing that um, may, maybe people don't know about. So tell us the story, Josie. Well, so Arts Emergency is an organisation that um, me and my friend Neil uh, set up about, well, officially 10 years ago, but we were working on it for a few years prior to that. And it exists partly in reaction to the wave of changes and cuts to arts education in um, higher education that happened in 2010, 2011. We felt that it was a state of emergency. We could see on the horizon all of the things that the government has brought in in the past 10 years and that they are doing now. And we dreaded it. You know, we dreaded the fact that they were trying to eliminate arts courses in higher education because they weren't instantly seen as profitable in one very specific metric. We dreaded the fact that they were taking away primary school and secondary school access to learning about the arts. They've been trimmed down. They've been cut to the absolute bone. It's very clear what, what that will lead to, because what it leads to is only the rarefied children of the wealthy being able to feel as if they can consider a life in the arts, a career in the arts, a career in the humanities. Me and Neil went to university from what we would describe as non-traditional backgrounds, sort of backgrounds basically that weren't upper middle class. <laughs> um, and it changed our lives and it gave us so much. And we got to a point where we were sort of approaching 30 and we felt that we had accrued some kind of cultural capital and we were aware of how difficult the situation was. Imagine approaching 30, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, that's a long distant dream for me. I'll tell you that yeah, for free. Yeah. <laughs> so we set up our society to do what we could at um, the age of kind of 16, 17 to give people the confidence and the sheer amount of tenacity it takes to say, I am entitled to to try for this life. And I'm just as good as the people who seem to be everywhere from these ultra privileged backgrounds. And I deserve to do it. So with Arts Emergency, it's an organisation that on one hand, it mentors young people. It's kind of what we want in a way is to have a kind of proxy familial situation where these people are brought into our organisation and the culture of our organisation over quite a few years, you know, between about 16 and about 23. And what we also have is we have a thing which we call the Alternative Old Boys Network, but we want to rename it because now we're like, oh, that sounds a bit, I don't know. I've heard Neil and you talk about this, the idea that so much of the creative industries and other industries are run on this Old Boys Network. Oh, completely. So you're creating an alternative to that, right? What the Old Boys Network alternative does is we have 8,000 people. They work in the arts. They're high level. You know, they, they work in humanities. They practice arts and humanities. They're people who really do represent kind of all 
aspects of the UK cultural scene um, and what they have in common. They're not all from a working class background. What they have in common is that they want to see things change and they want to support a change in the culture. So through their mentor, a young person will be able to say, I really want to be a film director, but I know nobody in film. And as far as I can see, I'll never get to do it. And it's too scary. I would never do it. And their mentor can access the network and reach I don't even know how many film directors. I'm not going to say 8,000, but it's a few. And those film directors can meet with the young person. That's great. Something I wanted to ask you about is it's not just the leap that it takes to enter this world. It's navigating it when you're in there if you're not from the background. And this can intersect with things like race and gender Mm -hmm. as well. Well, so if... The majority of people in your industry, in this circle, either through their school or their class background or their family, are in a kind of shared culture. They have shared experiences. If you're trying to break into that, you're coming from the outside of it. What it means is that it's harder for you to network effectively. It's harder for you to fit in. You know, you have to try and code switch. I'd say it is lonely and alienating to be the only person from a certain background. And definitely this intersects with things like race and religion and gender and sexuality. I'd also say that like, you can't really underestimate the difference between people who have family wealth and people who have nothing, you know, at every single stage, whether it be having the money for the rent, being able to get into a low paid or unpaid internship, you know, cope with financial precarity in the long term, cope with risk in the long term, you know, cope with the feeling that you are diving into the unknown. All of these things, it's a very clear divide privileged people have. How many young people have you helped, Jersey? So I know that in 2021, there were a thousand plus young people. Now we started in 2013 with a pilot and that was nine people. That's so amazing. Yeah, so it's built and built and built. Yeah. And it used to be just local in Hackney and now we are aiming to build it up and around the whole country. And we do have different branches in Merseyside. We have one in Thanet. We have one in Manchester. Well, sorry, is that like an office or do you mean, or a, or just a branch of people, of mentor, mentors? A branch of mentors, a way to kind of yeah. facilitate those mentoring in yeah. those places. And what are the criteria for getting into your programme? Well, you can self-refer to it. That's amazing. That's something we've really achieved. Yeah. You would know if this was for you, you know. This yeah. is for young people who don't have connections in the industry, maybe don't come from privilege, don't come from money, don't have the things that people who are coming out of elite schools have, you know. And this is to try and redress the balance and to re-level the playing field. And I feel like with our institution, it may only seem like a few thousand people a year, but what those young people will be able to do in terms of contributing to culture, changing the culture, broadening and making more rich and beautiful the culture is hopefully going to be a profound effect. There have been some really wonderful and really important works of art made by people from non-privileged backgrounds recently. There are some incredible voices, particularly in comedy, who I know are from working class backgrounds and understand what it is like. But if you look at it statistically... Despite these people who have risen to prominence, it is dire. It is even worse than it was in the 1970s. It's worse than it was 10 years ago. And I, you know, I'm so grateful for Arts Emergency because at the very least I know that there is something 
that is working hard to change that consistently and will continue to do so. I want to tell you this. This is the most horrific statistic, right? 8% of actors are from working class backgrounds. And that is half of what it was in the 1970s, which, you know, some would argue 16% is not enough, given that it's most people who have that background. But so, and then notably, like, you compare that to the statistic of 7% of the population is privately educated, right? Mm. So you just think like, it's a it's a reversal it's of inverse, reality. Yeah. yeah, it's completely at odds with reality. And what proportion of those in the arts are from private school backgrounds? Then uh, now that is a statistic I don't have, but here's a, here's the statistic I do have, which is the proportion of young cultural workers from upper middle class backgrounds more than doubled between 1981 and t- 2011. Wow! I would also say people from privileged backgrounds are more than twice, 2.5 times as likely to end up in creative occupations than their working class peers. Like it is harder for you at every turn if you don't come from money in in every part of our society at the moment. Really, the other th- good thing that Arts Emergency does is it commissions research. So they worked with academics from the University of Edinburgh and Sheffield in 2018. And basically what it found is that people who are very privileged believe that the arts is a meritocracy and believe that if you work hard, you will do very well. (laughs) And they believe it the most. That's true of people, is it? Nobody wants to think that the success they've had isn't down to them. Maybe even with some acknowledgement of privilege, people don't want to acknowledge how much other factors have played. And how do you go about shifting that then? I sometimes find it very hard not to just be angry. And I find it very hard not to be like more categorical, you know? And this isn't to say that I don't want wealthy people to make art, but it is to say that we have had one Mumford and Sons and it's a real danger that we might have another, you know, and that we must prevent that at all costs. Um, but what I would say is that the thing about Arts Emergency, one of the big, big, beautiful things about it is if you are somebody who comes from privilege, if you are somebody who's very successful and, let's be real, has been massively helped by parental connections, industry parental connections, e.g. that kind of thing, all we are really asking is that people be honest and self-aware about it. That doesn't mean that their art is terrible. It doesn't mean that they don't have a right to practice art or anything like that. What it means is if they're aware of it, what they can then do is commit to sharing what they have and to passing down what they have and to stepping out of what might be their own social and familial circle, stepping out of what might be their class background and deciding, making a conscious decision to change things from then on, you know? And this is a problem I have with privilege in the arts is you are not going to challenge the status quo if your dad is the status quo, you know? Mm. You're not going to want to dismantle the establishment when all your family are the establishment. And, And that reflects in your art, you know? That will reflect in the conclusions you draw in your dramas. That will reflect in the worldview of your films. So Arts Emergency, if people want to support it, what's the best way of them doing so? Is it becoming a mentor? Is it financially supporting it? Well, I would, what I would say is whatever suits you suits us. Like if you do have the time to mentor and you hear this and you feel that you do apply, that would be wonderful. This is not a case of only if you are from a certain background. One of the tenets of Arts Emergency is about sharing what privilege you've managed to accrue, giving it away, being generous, trying to change things by um, going beyond your social circle and your class background. We're always looking for people, particularly in the Merseyside area where we're sort of newly setting up. Um, But I'd also say we rely on regular monthly donors. 
And so if you feel that that's possible, let me promise you that it is having clear impacts on people's lives. And as a charity, oh my God, I'm so proud of the organisation. It's very beautifully run and I'm really proud of it. And what about if you feel um, you, you could be helped by Arts Emergency? Oh, well, if you go to arts-emergency.org, I think there's a place where you can self-refer. Josie, thanks so much. Thank you so much for letting me sort of spout on about this because I really think it's so massively important because culture is such a big part of like who we are and, and of what we can dare to think the future is. And like, I want us to be imagining it, you know? Well, I really enjoyed those conversations and I wonder if a good way to... Um figure out what we take from them is maybe by looking at our experiences because yeah. we, from two very different backgrounds. Yeah. Like I find the idea that um, your, your dad being a Marxist economist was helpful in new labour. <laughs> I mean, I can't quite match those two things up, but I think it's it's probably more the case that you grew up in a house and in an environment where just just the the type of job working in politics yeah. working in writing yeah. s- seemed possible and I, I never heard of jobs like that apart from on the telly i i think that's right and i mean look there's no doubt that my family background was a big part of what what made it tangible and and seem possible to be in politics because my parents knew people in politics i think you're right about that it made it a real thing i think there's this american expression which is you can't be what you can't see. Mm. You know what I mean? Do you ever see a film called Wild Rose with Jesse Buckley? This girl who wants to be a, a country music artist and she gets a job as a cleaner with a middle-class person and she says, oh, I went to university with somebody who's a producer on the uh, Today programme. Maybe I could call them and maybe they'll know Bob Harris at Radio 2. And I thought that was a really good example yeah. Of, of how normal it is to make those calls in that world and just perceive those networks and perceive possibility. And that's why all the mentoring stuff, both the stuff that Alan was talking about and the work that uh, Josie and uh, Joe are doing as well, that, that seems really important to me. This is right, isn't it? It's, it's like a sort of multi-layered cake, this. There's class background and resources is one foundation, the type of school you go to, but then there's the rules and the roots and the networks, which is another thing. You know what I mean? It's 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 multi-layered, this. Yes. What I found really interesting was how other places do it better. And we're not just talking about the Nordic countries where we're always looking yeah. to them as a paradigm of progressiveness. But Germany, Canada, Australia, this problem doesn't exist to the same extent in those countries. We are a class-ridden society. Yeah. It's a fundamental thing, isn't it? Yes. I mean, John Major called for a classless society in 1990, around 1992, which was a brilliant phrase, but we ain't a classless society. No. I mean, this is such a fascinating topic because... Social mobility is definitely an important aspiration because we're closer to equality of opportunity. I think that the work that people like Joe and Josie and so on are doing, I mean, like I know Joe Seddon's work really quite well from my constituency. And honestly, it's like a massive deal. What they're doing is they're giving what private schools give, which is like massive training, inside knowledge, mentoring about these interviews that you have at these top universities. Honestly, I've seen it make a difference. For more than one person, I've talked to people, including somebody who applied this year and has got offered a place in Cambridge, about the difference it made to them 
just be, going into an interview, knowing what to expect, knowing what the people were looking for. That's something that I think people at private schools would kind of take for granted. Yeah. So I think that is really interesting. Definitely. I think there's another aspect to this, which I, we touched on with Alan, which is you can't separate out inequality from social mobility. If the rungs of the ladder are further apart, it's harder to climb. He's completely right. We're such a long way from having like proper social mobility, equality of opportunity. Even if you had that, you want to aspire to a society where you don't have these massive, massive gaps, even if people can climb up the gaps. We've got so far to go as a society, don't we? Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa, we're in the outro. Ho-ho. I have a TV recommendation for you and I have... I'd say between 80 and 90% confidence in this. It's honestly such good timing because we've just come to the end of the second series of White Lotus. Have I told you about Search Party? No. So, you're going to feel a little bit old watching it because you're watching uh, Millennials. It's a series I started watching about um, five or six years ago, I think. Channel 4 showed it, but then they didn't buy the subsequent series, so I fell off, and it's really good. It's In a way, it's in the same vein as um, Only Murders in the Building, in that it's, it's good comedy, it's light, yeah. but it's plot-driven as well. And um, it's about a, a bunch of hapless millennials in New York who try and figure out what's happened with one of their friends who's gone missing. Okay. And um, the lead in it is Alia Shawkat, who was in Arrested Development, if you ever watched that. She's brilliant. But the whole cast is fantastic, and it's great comedy and good cliffhangers as well. You'll like it. BBC iPlayer. Right, shall we thank our guests? Yes, let's thank our guests. Josie Long, Joe Seddon and Alan Milburn. Thanks to Emma Corsham, who is our audio producer. Oh, my God, Ed, I'm going to send you a picture of Emma that I saw on social media today. You're not going to believe this. You ready for this? Get your phone ready. Oh, wow. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It is Emma and Judy Dench. At Judy Dench's house as well, I believe. How come? I think Emma was producing another podcast today and went round to Judy Dench's house. Why couldn't we be invited to Judy Dench's house? Now I know how you feel when I fail to invite you to the House of Commons. Yeah, or anything for that matter. But anyway, thanks thanks to Emma for still finding the time for us when she's uh, rubbing shoulders with such rarefied company. Thanks to Rachel Barmer, our content producer who's supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish, Gail Lofthouse is our announcer, Ed Seed composed the music, James Deacon made our eye dents, and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Floyd. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.